Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, David Aronovich here. Yesterday, we listened again to the extraordinary story of an Afghan interpreter, Ahmed Zai. He'd worked for British and American forces, but when they withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban swept into power, he was left to face what he expected to be a certain death. How do you view the future? Uh, I don't see a future. I, honestly, there's no future for me. We are kind of counting the moments to get killed by Taliban. We cannot leave. We will get killed, and uh, and uh, no hope left. No hope left. We will have to face what is going to happen to us. That was August. Many of you wrote in asking what happened next. One listener said, "I lit a candle for Ahmadzai tonight. I cannot stop thinking about him." Four months on, Ahmadzai is alive and well against all odds. We can even give him his full name, Hanif Ahmadzai, now that we no longer have to protect his identity. And Manveen has been finding out where the story of him and his family ended up. Hi. 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 How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? You're listening to stories of our times from the Times and the Sunday Times. Today, the Interpreter Part Two: Escape from Kabul. If it hadn't been for Christmas Partygate and Omicron, this story would have dominated the news. If this isn't what Fader looks like, what does Fader look like? As I say, we successfully evacuated 15,000 people. No, I'm sorry, this isn't about the headline stats, this is about the system. Last week at the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, we finally found out what was happening inside the Foreign Office while Kabul fell, and as many Afghans like Hanif were abandoned to their fate. More on that later. For now, over to Manbeen. Hello. Hi, Hanif. Hi. Hello, it's How Manveen. How are you, Manveen? It's so good to hear your voice. <laughs> Thank you so much. Likewise. How are you? Yeah, yeah, very good. Thanks so much. I'm in US now, in America. W- where, where exactly are you? I'm in Indiana State, and there is army camp. They call it Camp Atterbury. And so you're living on the army camp? Yes. And Hanif, I've got to ask, you know, it's just so lovely hearing your voice, but the last time we spoke to you on the podcast, it was really worrying. You know, you'd tried everything. Your home wasn't safe. The Taliban had raided it. Your job in government had vanished as the president flew off and fled the country. There were Taliban checkpoints everywhere. You couldn't get to the airport. The British government had revoked the permission for you to come to Britain 
and you didn't even know how to tell your children that it wasn't happening. It just seemed like there was so little chance for you to get out. You were in fear of your life, and to be honest, we were too. It was really scary. So tell me, how did you escape? Yes, one day the Americans, State Department and Navy and the U.S. Army, they gave me a call that we want to evacuate you and you should come to the airport. And if uh, you worked for us, and uh, we will never let you down. And that was a very encouraging sentence for me. Then I believed that they will do something to evacuate me. Then the problem was how uh, to go to the Kabul airport and pass all those Taliban checkpoints. Then it was, I think, August 20. I decided to go there. So I had my wife with me and my, my kids. And we decided uh, and tried to get inside to the airport. We tried different gates, but thousands of people were there. And I didn't get a chance because they were even using tear gas. Everyone had tears in their eyes because of those tear gas. And I had like five kids with me. The little baby was like 18 months old. It was two o'clock in the morning that we got close to the entrance, but the Taliban were not permitting us to get inside. Then the Taliban were standing over there, had weapons, and they were shooting in the air, AK-47, and they didn't care about the little babies, like my little baby, 18 months old. So they were shooting like only a meter or even half meter to her ears, the AK-47. Then these Taliban, they were torturing and hitting and beating the people. They were tying their hands, they were putting them on on the ground and then hitting them with AK-47. And my kids were crying and I tried to tell them to close their eyes or turn around. But they were watching everything. And when I told them that at least don't do it in front of the kids and the women, they said, you are infidels. The women are infidels. Your kids are infidels. This was their answer. Then it took like in the midnight, I decided to go back. When I took my kids back to the house, I told them why you guys were crying. They said that when Taliban were torturing those people, we thought that it's going to be you. They will torture you and beat you. I mean, your your kids must have been terrified. You must have been terrified. So what did you do next? When I went back, I contacted my American friends, the State Department. I told them that I couldn't get inside the airport. The kids are shocked. They told me, oh, we will send you a car and uh, we will bring you inside the Kabul airport. We were told to close all the uh, windows and doors and don't open the doors because uh, we were told that someone can drop a grenade uh, to the car. So the car moved slowly, slowly. And from the main entrance of Kabul airport, the gate, until where the Americans were standing, we had to pass like six or seven Taliban checkpoints. And every checkpoint, there was a danger of checking our bags and capturing us. The last 
checkpoint of Taliban, standing uh, like 10 to 15 Taliban with heavy weapons, RPGs and PKM machine guns. Wow. And they wanted to search our bags. And that was very scary because I had my documents with me. But luckily, they were convinced by the guy who was guiding us that the Americans are expecting us and these are the guys that are in the list. So then they said, okay. Relief. Yeah, what a relief. And just like 20 meters to these Taliban were American uh, soldiers waiting for us. And all the kids and everyone cheered. And the Americans told us that um, you are safe now. No one can harm you now. We were taken to the airplane. It was C-17 military plane. I took some photos of my son and kids. You, you sent me the, some pictures the then, and they look. They, I mean, you have you have a beautiful family. They are beautiful little kids, but they look so delighted. They've got their little bags yeah, yeah. on their shoulders. Yes, and they're in their yeah, outfits to, so to go away, and they look so happy. They looked so happy. They were smiling and laughing, <laughs> and yeah, they didn't sleep all night. So from there, they took you to Qatar. So from Kabul to Qatar and from Qatar to Germany and then from Germany to Washington, D.C., as we landed, they gave us like two years visa. They called it parole visa. From there, we were taken. They had different camps, refugee camps and different army bases. I asked where we have been taken. They told us that you are going to Indiana State and there is the army camp, so you are going there. So since September 10 until now, which is like 81 days now, we have been living here in the camp. There were like 7,000 refugees and 3,000 have left, and now we are like 4,000 in the camp. And what is life like there? It is good, not bad. They are giving us clothes and food. And we are just waiting for a departure. The U.S. government is kind of looking for apartments and houses to rent for us so we could leave. Is it quite nice being surrounded by so many refugees? Is it like a little Afghan village? My kids are telling me sometimes, Dad, you are lying to us. It is not America. You just moved us to a different place in Afghanistan <laughs> because they are all Af- Afghans around us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do they like it? Do they like it there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they like it. They like it. They met so many friends, yeah. I didn't tell my kids even now that our case was rejected by home office in UK. I just do not want my kids to have kind of negative thinking. So Mm. it was very bad over there. I always believed in positive thinking. But to be honest, those days I had kind of given up in the last few days because I didn't see any chance that I will be evacuated. Because I think last time we spoke about how the Taliban had searched my house, although I I always gave hope to my wife and my kids that everything will be right, but it didn't look good. The last days, my only wish was that in case the Taliban come, capture me and shoot me around or two, I will suffer and die. That's not good. 
My last wish was how to convince Taliban to shoot me at least like 30 rounds, a full magazine. <laughs> so, but you, you were actually thinking you wanted them to shoot you more times so that you were definitely yes. dead. Yes, yes, that that was my thinking, how to convince them. You actually thought about that. What did you think would happen to your kids in that scenario? I didn't have another option because I knew I was going to get killed. Of course, I was worried about my wife and um, my kids, but that was something that I could no more control. And how, how do your family, how does your wife and your children, how do they feel about being in America and you know, can they see a future there? Yes, they see their future here. They have the freedom now. Those Taliban and the danger they were facing in Afghanistan is only a part of their past experiences. No more those bomb blasts, no more explosions, no more suicide attacks. Totally changed their life, totally. I'm so glad. And have the Americans been welcoming? As we landed in Washington airport, I saw the American soldiers and how they welcomed us, how they were clapping hands. I couldn't believe my eyes because I didn't know we were, were, were be this much welcomed in the United States. Because this time my kids became refugees, my wife became a refugee. But as a kid, I became a refugee to Pakistan because of the Soviet invasion in 1980s. Of course, this isn't the first time for you. Yeah, for me, this was second time. Yeah. But for my kids, they were experiencing the same thing like I did when I was a kid. But I wasn't welcomed well in Pakistan. As a kid, they always called me refugee. For years and years in the school, I was called refugee. Nobody called me Hanif. And one day I told my father that, what does it mean when they call us refugees? Does it mean that refugee is my last name or is refugee my family name? Or is it the tribe or ethnicity or is it my country name? For years, I didn't know what refugee meant. But this time in US, it was different. I'm so glad for you and for your children. And I really hope that all lasts. Hanif, when we last spoke, you know, the the Home Office here in in the UK had cancelled your permission to come here. They weren't giving you any right to appeal it. Clearly, that wasn't a problem for the Americans. You know, they they had no fears about whether you were a, a security risk at all. When we last spoke, you said that you, you know, you, you regretted working for the British because it had jeopardised your life and it had placed your children in, in danger. How do you feel about it now? I didn't know for what reasons they called me threat to UK security. But later, when we asked them, then they said that in 2008 and 2009, you were working for American and you were involved in corruption practices. That's why we rejected your case. Did they say what those practices were? They said uh, bribes or money, corruption. But Americans never considered me threat to their security. They never told me that you are involved in corruption. How could you believe that I was involved in corruption? That was my question. Yes, last time I thought it was the British Army that I said that I regret it. I'm going to take my word now that I said that I regretted working for the British Army. I will never regret working for the British Army because 
this wasn't the, the British Army who made the decision. It was the Home Office. And although I'm now safe in the United States, but I have decided to challenge the Home Office decision in the High Court. Really? Yes, their decision was wrong, was not fair. And although I'm safe, I want to win the case because when I win the case, at least it is going to open the door to many other interpreters whose lives are at risk in Afghanistan. Coming up, the problems at the heart of government that left people like Hanif without help and losing hope. But first... I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hanif is now safe, but he was just one of many Afghans who were desperate to escape, but who were caught up in government bureaucracy during the hasty withdrawal. Many others weren't so lucky. One of the people trying to help interpreters get out was Hanif's friend and former colleague, Charlie. I'm Charlie Herbert. I'm a retired British Army age general with several tours in Afghanistan, who's been working over the last few months to try and help interpreters, former British Army interpreters in particular, to get out of Afghanistan. And Charlie, the last time we spoke to you in August, things were looking pretty bleak. We were talking about the case of Hanif. We were calling him Ahmadzai at the time. We were so worried about his safety. And it looked like he was going to struggle to escape because the Home Office had just done a U-turn saying he wasn't allowed to come to this country because of his conduct, character and associations. Things just felt really hopeless. Take us back to that and remind us what happened next. Hanif was one of a group of, we think, probably between 20 and 30 former interpreters who were rejected by the Home Office on what appear to be some fairly uncertain, unproven, one might say, security grounds. And it's always been very difficult. And, and of course, it's now the subject of, of significant legal action. But of course, what it meant is, is that Hanif was rejected for relocation to the United Kingdom during the evacuation of Kabul. And he was saved, as were one or two others, by the good nature of the United States and other coalitions. In, in Hanif's case, he was offered sanctuary by both the Dutch and by the United States. And he was evacuated during that awful two weeks after the fall of Kabul. So the stories ended nicely, but it, it mm. was awful. And it's so interesting that you say he was accepted by both the Americans and the Dutch. I mean, it does make it seem even more baffling that the Home Office would claim he was being rejected for reasons of national security. Did you ever get to the bottom of what those reasons were? No, 
No, absolutely not. It is now the subject of, of legal action. It makes absolutely no sense to anybody tracking this case. I wouldn't fight so hard for an individual if I had any doubt about it. He's not unique. If he was one, one might question, what is it about Hanif that led to him being rejected? But as I say, there was a group of about 20 or 30 of them over a very short period of time, we think about a month, who were rejected on the same grounds. I mean, it's indicative, I think, of the sort of lack of a joined up approach between the Ministry of Defence and the Home Office. But truth will come out one day. I don't think the lawyers are going to give up on this one. It's a really interesting case. I suspect this will go to a full judicial review in due course. And tell me about that. You know, what's the aim behind the judicial review? Is this hoping to make a difference for other interpreters too? I mean, I think the aim, quite simply, is to force a reconsideration of a decision. It's not the only legal action that I think is taking place. I'm, I'm aware of various others. Of course, of course, the Ministry of Defence have, have rejected a number of applicants, far more than the Home Office. I mean, far more. This is sort of the tip of the iceberg in many respects. There are so many. There are dozens more, if not hundreds more, whose applications are still pending, who simply cannot get any information from the Ministry of Defence about their application. They still live in perpetual hope that they will one day be evacuated by the British from Kabul. But I just don't see that happening. And Charlie, there are, there are clearly lots of people who are still stuck out there. And we know that for people like Hanif, the government wasn't really able to help. Are there a, a number of interpreters who have made it here, though? I mean, it has been a gargantuan effort. It's been a huge effort. You know, notwithstanding the failures, we should not underestimate the scale of the successes in bringing people to the UK. It's just the metric by which we'll all be judged is the number of very vulnerable people that are left behind. So whilst every success is, is heartwarming, it's those that we've not yet had success with that keep me awake at night and that we all need to. We need to keep this flame alive. We need to prevent this becoming yesterday's problem and old news. And do you think you'll, um, you'll have a, an opportunity for a reunion with Hanif at some point? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, Hanif and, Hanif and others, I mean, 100%. I, I, I should go and see Hanif in the United States at, at some point. I was just devastated in July, late July, early August, when, when I didn't think he was going to get out. It speaks really ill of the UK that we've rejected people who worked for us, but our NATO alliance members have taken them. I mean, what does that say about us as a country? And where do you think that's gone wrong? The government should have done more about this before the evacuation. We had April, May, June and July to fast track these people out of the country. And we didn't. I said to the chief of defence staff, you don't even give them a help number to call. You even take down the email address that they've been using for the last four months. Last week, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee heard what was really going on in the heart of government during those crucial days in August as NATO withdrew from Afghanistan. This was a catastrophe. This was not all the other things going on that we'd like to say, oh, well, there are lots of other things going on. This was a catastrophe of incomparable nature. I don't accept that it didn't work. We evacuated 15,000 people in two weeks. That doesn't happen by accident. Infamously, Dominic Raab, Boris Johnson and civil service bosses were on holiday as Kabul fell to the Taliban. Many claimed one of the reasons Dominic Raab lost his job as foreign secretary was for not returning sooner. But the committee heard that even the head of the diplomatic service, Sir Philip Barton, didn't return from his holiday 
until 11 days later. What day did you return from holidays, Philip? So I'm, I'm happy to go into dates in a minute, Chair, but let me just say before I do that, I mean, I have uh, reflected uh, a lot uh, since August on, uh, on my leave, and if I had my time again, uh, I would have come back from my leave earlier, earlier than I did. Can you just tell us when you went on holiday? Yeah, I went on holiday on the 9th of August. The 9th. Just so, to repeat what I said. Yeah, no, no, I've got it. I've got it. You don't need to repeat it. I'm, I'm going to say it again. You know, I have reflected on this very carefully. And if I had my time again, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would have come back. It, it sounds less credible every time you repeat it. It sounds platitudinous. In written evidence, whistleblower Raphael Marshall described chaos and dysfunction at the Foreign Office. He said junior staff, with no experience of Afghanistan, were left to make life and death decisions. Thousands of emails pleading for help were not even read. He also said officials were instructed to airlift 170 cats and dogs belonging to a charity run by the former soldier Penn Farthing. British soldiers went out, opened the gates, got these animals into the airport and made sure they made it onto the airplane. We have lots of planes. So those soldiers actually instead could have been sifting through applications. There were denials. It is not my understanding uh, that anyone could have been got out but wasn't as a result of the animals being brought onto the airfield by, uh, by the owner. Boris Johnson himself said this was complete nonsense. But a letter from the PM's parliamentary aide, Trudy Harrison, to Penn Farthing said he was authorised to evacuate his staff and the animals. Labour MP Chris Bryant had this to say. The Prime Minister's fingers are all over this, aren't they? And you're just trying... I, well, I, I'm hesitant to use the word cover-up, but that's what it feels like. I wasn't aware of the letter. Well, in which case, it just again, it feels like nobody's ever aware of anything, that everything can happen at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and um, the senior management really are a bit absent. Dominic Raab said later... Sorry, it's just not accurate. We, of course, didn't put... So that's a lie. Uh, we did not put uh, the welfare of animals above uh, individuals. I'm not accusing anyone of lying. I'm just correcting the facts. But what is certainly true is that we had a lot of people rushing to get out of Afghanistan for all sorts of reasons. And I think it's right that we had a process in place to check two things. One, that we were helping those at genuine risk of persecution or British nationals or people who had worked for the British government. And secondly, making sure um, that we didn't allow anyone to come into the UK who might present a threat to the UK. While we were making this episode, we approached the government for comment, but they didn't get back to us in time. It may be some time before we get a full account of what really unfolded here in London, in the heart of government, as Kabul fell. Are there any parts of Afghanistan, of your home in Kabul, that you miss? We had friends, we had relatives, and uh, we had a house. We were working for the government, and we could bring change in the society. Because I work for the president here in the U.S., I don't have those kind of opportunities. I will be just working only for myself and my family to make some money and support my family. 
And Hanif, do you think you'll ever go back? Hmm. I don't think. Uh, I don't think very soon. Back in my hometown, we planted thousands of apple trees, but <laughs> those apple trees, <laughs> maybe my kids and my grandchildren, they will go there and they will take apples from them. But for me, no. Maybe decades later. Just finally, is is that your children in the background? I have uh, my my kids with me. It's Zala, it's Uranga, and Atal. Can I speak to them? Yes, they are uh, sitting here. <laughs> Should we start Next with them? Um, Should we start with Atal, who's your eldest? Yes, Atal. Yeah. How old is he now? Uh, oh, he's ten. He's ten. He just celebrated his tenth birthday here in the camp. He doesn't speak English. I have to translate it for him. Oh, okay, no problem. Um, uh, hello. Hello, Sangay. Hi. 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 How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Hanif? I wanted to ask him what he thinks of America. Why the America part of Sangay picker guy? America, Atal says that America is a good place. There is peace and uh, they will go to school, we will go to university and we will fly helicopters and we will go to Disneyland. <laughs> that's, a, that's an amazing lineup. <laughs> and Hanif, could I say hello to your girls too? Yes, there is uh, Zala. Zalawe? Yes, she's here. She's listening to you. Hello. I'm very good, thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm very impressed. I'm I'm very well, thank you. Tell me your name and how old you are. Why, Tanum Chishin? I'm Zala. Seven. 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 <laughs> That's yeah. so sweet. Um, ask them all. Do they miss Afghanistan? Why, Afghanistan? No. She says no. <laughs> she says, uh, I don't miss Afghanistan because uh, there were Taliban and uh, they were breaking sticks and beating people. And how about the others? Is there anything they miss about Afghanistan? <laughs> relatives, she says. She misses her relatives, yeah. And could you ask the girls, um, are they happy? Okay. Uranga, to America ki khoshale? Oh, little Uranga, she's five years. She says, yes. <laughs> she says, America is good. Zala? America de khoshigi? Delta khoshale? She says that uh, America is good, it's big, and uh, there is Disneyland too. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of excitement about Disneyland, I can tell. Yes, they make (laughs) drawing all day. She says, yes, planning to go. (laughs) That's so lovely. Hanif, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to speak to your, your children as well. A pleasure talking to you today. They're lovely. Uh, so much. Yeah. 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with my colleague Manveen Rana and our guests Hanif Amadzai, the interpreter, and retired Major General Charlie Herbert. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. And if you've got a story you think we should be covering, perhaps an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to times at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.